Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me on the mic hosting an episode where I share a recent reflection or story from my own life as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. So today on this solo episode, I will be sharing my two cents on what people get wrong about fundraising slash venture capital. This episode is airing on Halloween. So maybe you're listening to this on the 31st. Maybe you're listening to it later. So I'm calling it Scary Myths About VC and Fundraising. Goal is to, you know, try not to spook you too much, but debunk some of the scary myths and go with the Halloween theme. Okay, so again, as a reminder, these are just my two cents. I just spitballed some different things that I think people tend to get wrong or initial expectations around what fundraising is going to be that don't always play out that way. So yeah, this is me just spitballing a few different things. Would love to hear from you if this is helpful. And also if you have any additional scary myths that I left off. All right. First, I think the most obvious one is that VC is the only fundraising path. That is a myth. There are many, many other ways to build a company. And we know that we hear this all the time, but I'll just reiterate, like venture capital is reserved for a very small percentage of businesses. And there are a lot of other great businesses that should exist without taking venture capital dollars. You can crowdfund, you can raise a small friends and family round and then bootstrap. You can just bootstrap entirely if you if that's possible. With one of my businesses, I took out a lot of credit card debt thought- thoughtfully, of course, so I didn't pay any interest on it. There's a lot of other ways. And so I think we often loop venture capital and fundraising together. We loop venture capital and business building together when in reality, that's not the only path. And I actually have some content coming out on that soon, just about how we need, we should be spending our time talking about the types of companies that should exist, not obsessing over the way they capitalize those businesses. I think it's unfortunate that we do, but I hope everyone here that's listening, if you feel like, I don't know if venture capital is the right thing for me, it really might not be. That's the first myth. Another myth is that all funds are generally the same and capital is capital. That is a big myth in every way. First of all, capital is not just capital. If you really are doing your job, you're going to be making the people that give you the capital a lot of money. So you want to make sure that the people you make rich, you feel happy that you're making rich. And I say this because there are a lot of funds that I know of that will not raise from sovereign wealth funds as LPs. I'd say this because there are some VCs that don't have the best reputation. We're currently going through a big crisis now in the Middle East with what's happening in Israel. As I'm recording this, there are certain people that will now not take money from certain investors that have taken certain stances. So capital is not just capital. If you are going to raise capital, I would think about who you're making rich. If I do my job and I have as much belief and conviction in myself as I say I do, Who is getting wealthy off of me doing what I say I'm going to do? The other thing to think about too is there's just different levels of expertise and different risk profiles attached with funds. So the first 
One that I think is the most obvious is like the size of the fund. So like an emerging fund, which is like, you know, one of the first few funds a fund manager will do typically less than 100 million in AUM. And an eMERGE fund will be much larger than that. It's been around for a while on probably fund four or greater. The risk profiles are a little bit different. So like if someone is writing you a $2 million check out of their $50 million fund, they will give you more time, more attention. They care a lot more about your company succeeding than someone writing you a $2 million check out of their $250 million fund, right? You're making up a smaller percentage of their total bets, their total capital and work. And so I would just keep that in mind too. Whenever you take money, what percentage am I making up of the total pool? And therefore, it tends to be how much are they going to care that I do well? I would also say more high level too, a lot of these more emerged funds that have been around for a long time are in some ways too big to fail. They don't necessarily need to be hitting the incredible DPI that the smaller funds need to. And the DPI is just the returns, right? So if you're a smaller fund, think of yourself like a startup. You're held to a really high standard. Oh my gosh, we need to be investing in the very best companies and getting the very best returns. The bigger you get, think about it like a big corporate company. Eh, we can spend a little here and it doesn't necessarily have to pay back. We can spend a little there and eh, it works out or it doesn't. There isn't as much at stake. And so I think people often will not work as hard to return the capital when they already have a lot of people lining up to give them more money, right? That's just common sense. So I would say just make sure that when you accept capital, you know how much time they're going to invest in you and you know how much they need to see you succeed, right? Are they as invested as an emerging fund? And then the other thing in terms of all funds not being the same is there are specialist funds and more generalist funds. And, you know, specialist funds can come in the form of a sector, right? So you can be a fintech fund and you understand financial technology better than anyone. Maybe you've been an operator. Maybe you've been investing in financial technology for a long time. That's one form of a specialist fund. Another form of a specialist fund is like really crushing pre-seed. And their whole thing might just be like they help you go from pre-seed to seed. And so when it comes to like lining up intros for that next round, they've got you. Another specialist fund, in my case, could be backing community builders and having a strong point of view around like, you know, the next generation of elephant companies, which is like my unique thesis. And then there's generalist funds that people tell me I'll invest in anything. They might have certain stages they care about, or maybe they just want to do software, or maybe they just want to do consumer, but like they tend to be just more generalist. That's okay too. But you should know what you're getting into. You should know what their level of expertise is. All right. The next myth. VC funds are dependent on you succeeding to make money. I talk to a lot, especially to diverse founders who feel this pressure more than others. Like, I need to succeed so that my investors can make a lot of money. In some ways, yes, that's true. They're betting on you because they think you'll succeed. But the way that the venture model works is that one company has to crush it out of their 30 bets. I'm obviously overgeneralizing. They want more than one company and they want to see a lot succeed. But the way that the model works is that like you expect, you know, a third are not going to do well, a third are going to do okay, and a third are going to really crush it. And crushing it varies. And even within that top third, you know, there's a couple that really return the whole fund. So I think understanding the business model of a fund, like if you look at what percentages they attach to the likelihood of success for all their companies, it'll give you a better sense of how they're making decisions, what that business model looks like, right? So that's just something to think about is like, and it, it becomes really obvious when you understand the fund model and it becomes obvious when you talk to people who start or run their own funds. 
like, oh, okay, this is how they make money. So they don't need every single one of us to have a 100x exit and they don't need every single one of us to have a 2x exit, right? The model is actually, you just need a couple to 100x, if not, you know, one. Next myth is VCs are very helpful. And I know that people might be laughing as I say this because VCs always like to brag about how helpful they are. I think in reality, you need to know what types of help they can give you for the most part. And also know, again, going back to understanding the model, how many companies they're really supporting. And especially emerging funds that have to not only be investing, they have to be fundraising, they have to be managing the back office, they have to be marketing themselves, they have to, I mean, it's so much. To expect VCs to give a lot of help is something that I think is unrealistic. And I say this with the smaller funds and I actually say this with the larger funds too. A lot of the larger funds will also promise, you know, we have all these resources for you and it tends to disappoint. So don't expect, of course, sometimes they will help. Of course, sometimes they'll make a big phone call and it really goes a long way, but don't expect that they are going to be right there with you. They're all going to say they will be, but there are very few who actually are. And then it's knowing what are the ways that they actually support you? What are the most high level ways? So I think one of the most obvious ones is helping make intros for your future rounds, giving you capital to bridge or extend your runway. That's the most obvious way that they help, right? Because they have a network of other VCs. Often you'll see that they can help by finding great hires and convincing great hires to join, especially more senior talent. That's another way that I see VCs help a lot. Let's say you need a CMO to step in, or let's say you need a founding product designer, which is kind of a hard role to fill. You might lean on your VCs to help you because they have maybe reach on social media. Maybe they have a good database of folks that are always looking. Maybe they themselves were in that role previously and know folks. So I would say hiring is another way. I also think I find a lot of it's like emotional support. (laughs) And this might just be me with my own lens of it, but a lot of it is like, When people are struggling with things or they're celebrating things, it's just being there. It's just being a text away. As an example, one of my portfolio companies, like they were really struggling with an investor. I won't go into details. They were struggling with an investor and we got drinks and talked about it and talked through how to get that investor to be helpful and not be a blocker. Should they allow this investor in their next round? Again, keeping it vague, but it was like I was able to be that sounding board Yes, of course, I have some stake in in seeing them succeed. But more than anything, I was there to be like emotional support. You see this a lot with like co-founder conflicts, right? Again, I've seen co-founders where both co-founders are trying to get you on their side and on their team and they need to break up and it's complicated and tricky. A lot of the ways VCs help is because they've done these reps before with other companies. Now, of course, you might have some folks that are really brilliant at go-to-market and might have some folks that are really, really brilliant at building out your your HR team, your people team as you scale. Of course, there's these niche amounts of expertise, but I would say for the most part, know that VCs aren't actually overly helpful and in the weeds day to day like they promise. I think 90% of the time, I would say, just set your expectations lower and know that the ways that they help you are really with like usually fundraising, maybe key hires and emotional support for the most part. More than anything, just make sure your expectations are not super high that they're gonna be in the weeds with you. Unless that's like, what their entire value prop is, they take on very, very few portfolio companies a year and they're incubating and it's like a studio more than anything else, then fine. But I would say just have your expectations at bay. Okay, next, that FOMO and names don't matter. This is also a myth. It does matter. I think what's really important 
is getting people who have expertise in the area you're building. Whether that's angels, whether that's funds, having names that other people respect is huge. And I think this most often comes in the form of really successful angels or really successful founders or VCs that can be angels. So you can have their name on your cap table. You can have them in your back pocket and that will help other people get confidence, right? This can be advisors. This can be angel investors. This can be whatever you want. But I do think it's really important. And then running a tight process. And this is kind of like the next myth in terms of FOMO. But like I see a lot of founders say that they don't need to do fundraising as their full-time job and they like have opportunistic conversations. And I think for it to be that's most successful, you need to do it as a full-time job. Now, this is all easier said than done. I'm saying this as someone who has my own fund and like I have to also fundraise and it's really hard to do it full-time. So I'm saying this because it's easier said than done. But the more that you can focus all your attention or as much of your attention as possible in fundraising, the more you can build that FOMO and the more the process can go faster. And I do think that's really important because people talk and you do want there to be some energy and, and excitement about the raise, about the round. And I do think that happens if you can just get more reps in. So it does matter, unfortunately. Okay, the next myth is that you need a warm intro. Warm intros help. No one is denying that. But a really thoughtful, cold outreach can go a very long way. I know some investors that have invested in companies based on cold outreach. And more than anything else, like it's not even just doing a cold outreach to get that person to invest in your round. It's maybe it's a cold outreach to someone who's really relevant to your industry. You hop on a call with them, then they are generous with their network, right? It's not always cold outreach to VCs. It can be cold outreach to relevant people with expertise in your sector who can then open up their network for you. Maybe it's cold outreach to founders that have successfully raised capital who can then give you advice and make interest to their investors. So I would say like, get creative with it. I'm a big cold outreach fan. I always say like, you never know what's going to come of it, but there's always something good that will come from cold outreach, always. And it might be, you know, one in every 100 emails you send, right? It might not be one in every five, but I do think it's really important when you are building your network and you are fundraising to not be afraid of cold outreach. And, you know, I've only been in this industry for a couple of years. So much of my network has been built on cold outreach. And then the thing is, once you get one person to vouch for you, so as an example, like let's say, and this has definitely happened to me, I reached out to some top tier GP at a fund and said, hey, I'm working on this. Would love to get your advice and hear more about what you're working on. Once I meet with that person and they realize that I'm doing cool stuff and they like me and they want to help me, that's then a warm contact for me. So then in the future, the more people I reach out to, they see that I'm connected to this other person. Everything gets warmer and warmer, if that makes sense. But you have to start with the cold in a lot of ways or going to events and meeting people and then getting intros that way. It compounds, you know, it only gets warmer and warmer because once you get in that your foot in the door and they introduce you to other people, it just all these contacts then switch from cold to warm. All right. The next myth I wanted to talk about is the higher the valuation, the better off you'll be. Everyone has different schools of thought on go raise as much capital as you can and raise it as high a valuation as you can and blah, blah, blah. That's not always the case. I would say more often than not, you want to take the right money, not just the highest valuation money. And you really want to try to raise only what you need, not just what you can take. Giving up your pieces of your company is no joke. You're going to need that equity later on if all goes well. That's why I get so upset seeing all these accelerators give ridiculous terms to founders, you know, giving them like 100K and then asking for like 10% or giving them even worse, asking for 20%. Like 
you're going to need that equity later. You shouldn't just take any capital. And on the flip side, just because the valuation is really high doesn't necessarily mean it's good capital. It's good money. You want to bring on the right partners at a valuation that feels fair and feels middle of the road. And just because people want to give you more money does not mean that you should take more money. Not everyone's going to agree with me with that, but I think that that is something we should be talking about more. There's also, you'll be cutting out a lot of really helpful people. And this is something that not enough people talk about. If you're raising a seed round and you're trying to raise at a 50 million post, let's say it's some hot AI thing and you've got all these big funds clamoring to get involved, most emerging funds cannot put money into that company because the math doesn't make sense for them. Again, this goes back to understanding the venture capital fund model. When you are a small fund and you are held to very high standards and you need to do well, you cannot invest in super highly valued companies because you will never get your money back. So I think what's really important is also keeping that in mind. Like just because people will give you money doesn't mean that you should take that money at that high valuation. And you'll also often cut out people along the way who would love to help you, but it's too high. So I think that's really important. Don't go too low. Don't go too high. I know a lot of this feels like more of an art than a science, but just because someone's offering you a high valuation does not mean that's the right move for you or your company. Okay. The last myth that I wanted to mention, and again, let me know if there's any I missed. This was just off the top of my head. The myth was I'm stuck with these investors forever. I hear that a lot. And even in this conversation, you've heard me say like, you don't want to be stuck with bad investors. And in reality, you do kind of graduate from investor groups as you raise follow-on capital. So let's say you raise a great pre-seed, you're building. They will often pass you off to the seed round. Some of those investors will stay. Some of those investors will not stay. New ones will come in. And that'll continue as you keep moving up. Then you go raise your big Series A. You have a huge lead and you've got a lot of other Series A investors. There is a chance small checks are put in from your pre-seed and seed investors. But for the most part, like that's a different area of expertise and even more so at the Series B and even more so at the Series C. And so, of course, the great investors you can keep in your back pocket and keep along for the ride. And they will be so happy to prop you up because you are one of their, you know, examples of a company that did it right. But there is something to be said for like you do kind of graduate and get a new crop of investors who care and have a new level of expertise to get you to that next fundraising round. So I think that's also something important to keep in mind. Like if you, let's say, have an investor right now that you're like, oh my gosh, am I stuck with them forever? In some ways, yes. Of course, you can't really get them off the cap table that easily. I mean, you actually, there are ways you can, but for the most part, you will be graduating and you won't necessarily have to have them be your only advocate. So yeah, those are some myths. I know fundraising can seem very scary. I know venture capitalist industry can seem very opaque. Of course, what I try to do with this podcast, what I try to do online with my content is to democratize access to a lot of this stuff. No question is too stupid. I promise you I'm still asking it, okay? I'm still learning. I'm still asking these dumb questions because there are no dumb questions. So don't hesitate to reach out if you have any questions. I do hope this was helpful. And yeah, best of luck if you are planning a fundraise. I hope it goes smoothly and it isn't too scary. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20-something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20-something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts.